But welcome, it's good to be here on uh, Good Friday, our first uh, Easter service. And uh, we are gathered this morning around some very uh, serious considerations. And one of the things that we do when we come to Easter, in my observation, is that often we move very quickly from Friday to Sunday. Sunday is the celebration day, the, the resurrection Sunday, and the and the joyous occasion, and yet we move very quickly away from Friday. And in many senses, you cannot have Sunday without Friday. You cannot fully enjoy Sunday unless you go through Friday. And Sunday's rejoicing is magnified by Friday's sorrow. To truly comprehend and enjoy the depth of the resurrected Lord himself, that has to be magnified through going the deepest of sorrows and horrors that we have to consider this Friday. And Good Friday, therefore, is a frame of reference for us. Good Friday is the laying down of a context which we can fully comprehend and rejoice this Easter. And we need to remember and be reminded of the context in which this takes place. And for many of us, I think this is not our first Good Friday service. We've been to Many, many Good Friday services. And familiarity may be our problem, that we've become too familiar with the story, and hence we move too quickly, and we don't stop and pause and comprehend the severity and the reality of what actually happened on this Friday. And I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he explains this good news, this gospel message. And the, you know what the first thing he says? That which has been passed on to me, I pass to you. And of first importance, he says, that Christ died for our sins. And we have to grapple with the death of Christ. We have to grapple with the reality of our sins this morning. We have to come to a, a place of the understanding the gravity and the immensity of the context and the situation in which our lives are placed, in which all of humanity's lives are placed, that this is the most important person in all of history. And this is the most important event in all of history. So we need to be reminded again, firstly, and we need to reflect as a starting point on this Friday morning. So the first thing I want to call us to is a reflection of the severity of what happens on this Friday. And we, we need to be reminded then, therefore, of the, the reason for and the need for and the context of Jesus' death and resurrection. What is this cause? What is this reason why we are here today? And what is it that has brought us to this point? So I want to take us back to one of the passages we read in Luke. In Luke uh, uh, verses 28, or sorry, verses 27 to 29, the Luke 23 passage. And right at the beginning of this passage, this is a, this is a section of, a, of the account that we don't often read or we don't often stop or pause on. Um, and it's only found in Luke's account. Let me read uh, from verses 28 to 31. It says, A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. And for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Jesus is in the process of being murdered. 
He has been physically assaulted. His life is dripping out of him. He's been beaten to a pulp. He's carrying a cross. And what does he do? He stops. He pauses. He turns. And he gives us a message. And I think we should pause and reflect on what he's saying. He says something so astonishing and so astounding. He says, don't cry for me, but cry for yourselves. Don't you think it's astounding? What would your response be in this process? Your pity and your compassion would be for the one who's being killed. And the one who's being killed turns around and says, don't worry about me. Don't be concerned for me. Be concerned for yourselves. He says you should be weeping. Don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. What does he mean in that statement when he says that? Well, he's implying and he's telling us there's a judgment. There's something horrific coming. And it's so horrific, he goes on to say, it would be better that you were never born. There will be a day when we celebrate the barren womb. Well, he's saying, he's turning to the crowd and he's saying, today you should be weeping for yourselves. There is a judgment that is coming. The only thing worse than what I'm suffering is what you will ultimately suffer, a judgment. And this is the severity of the situation. This is where we have to start on Good Friday. Paradoxically, we call it Good Friday, but it starts in this horrific moment. We have to plumb the depths first before we can ascend to the heights. And Jesus is saying our reflection point, the context in which we can celebrate Easter this weekend, starts like this. There's a holy and a righteous God who in grace and love and mercy acts against sin and the consequences of sin. And unless we agree, and unless we turn to him in repentance and faith, unless we submit to him, we will stand under a judgment for our sin. And that results in an eternal separation. It results in eternal death. And he's calling us this morning and enlightening us to this reality that in culture today we often don't want to hear. It is indeed a severe situation. And the reality of Easter Friday is that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of the glory of God. And that's our framing reference for this weekend. And these are sober matters. I, I don't stand here lightly. I know in our current cultural melee, so to speak, is these are offensive words to hear. Um, we could drop a piece of paper and offend somebody nowadays. And to be able to say to you that we are sinners, filled with sin, standing under the righteous judgment of God. And that is at the heart and the beginning place of Easter. See, weeping for Jesus, or feeling compassionate for him in this moment, might seem like a good thing to do. But unless you weep, unless you weep over your own sin, unless you acknowledge apart from him, we stand righteously and justly judged. So I, my prayer today is that we would take a moment together on this Friday to reflect on this severity, to reflect on the seriousness of what this means 
And then consider. Consider this gracious call, this loving warning, this reminder that Jesus gives us. He stops on his way to call us again and say, weep. Be reminded, this is what's happening. Remind ourselves this morning of Jesus' death for you and for your sin. So we might be at this point, and I think it's common for us as humans, is we, we often try and get ourselves out of responsibility. We could be sitting here saying, well, this doesn't apply to me. The obvious response is, well, like he died for sinners. And immediately we think of the worst case scenario. It doesn't apply for me. This, this severity, this heed of this warning call is not for me. I'm a relatively, I'm not a perfect person. We know, hear this in church all the time. I'm morally okay, and we think of the worst-case scenario. But Jesus doesn't give us this option if you go back to what he says. He says something very profound. Who does he address? He says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. So daughters of Jerusalem means the people of Israel. It's a, it's a word that's used for the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. And who are the Jewish nation? They are the chosen people of God. They're the ones supposedly in right standing with God. They're the ones who have favor with God. They're the ones who God took out of slavery and he's put them in the land with all of God's blessing. They are his treasured possession. They are his people. Daughters of Jerusalem are the good people, so to speak. Those whom God has put his favor on. But he turns to them and he says, weep. Weep over your sin. He's not addressing the obvious case that we might go to. What he's telling us this morning is his warning call applies to everyone. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and all fall short. Daughters of Jerusalem, my chosen people, the people of Israel, you should weep as well. So that means that for us this morning, you might be sitting here and you might think of yourself as a good person. You might think of yourself maybe as a moral person. You might think of yourself as a religious person or a spiritual person. You might see yourself as an inclusive person. You might think of yourself as a tolerant person. Today, you might even see yourself as a progressive, enlightened person. And he says this morning, all of you, all of us, weep. Weep in the severity of what we are facing. Don't trust in your own righteousness. Don't trust in your own goodness or your inclusive worldview, or whatever your ideology is. He says, don't trust in this. He's saying we should be weeping. We should be weeping over our rebellion, of our sin, against a good and holy and righteous God. And turn that's why he's calling us. He's saying, turn in repentance and faith. Turn to me. Look where I'm going. And I'm going to the cross for you. So we should reflect on this severity this morning. And that is the context in which we find ourselves at the start. We all fall short. For we all sin. And we all stand under the holy, righteous judgment of God. And weep, consider, reflect. So then how should we respond? 
So the second thing is I want us to consider how we should respond to the severity. How do we respond to this reality? And there's many different ways in which we can respond this morning. But ultimately, it always falls into two buckets. You either believe or you don't believe. There's only two ways to respond. And when it comes to God and what he says is there's no middle ground. It's light and dark. Yes and no. I agree or I don't agree. I believe or I don't believe. And within those buckets, there might be some spectrums. But all of us fall into one of them this morning. And we need to consider how we should respond to the severity. So one of the ways you can respond, and all of us, I think, fall into this narrative. And there's various groupings in the narrative I want to point out for us. And you might be able to identify in some way of where you stand on this spectrum this morning. So the, one of the ways you can respond in unbelief is a passive unbelief. If you look at verse 27, a large number of people followed him. Verse 35, the people stood watching. So what we see is there were crowds of people around Jesus who did nothing. They, were, they weren't wailing and crying in compassion. They weren't insulting or assaulting and brutally assaulting Jesus. They were just there. They were around Jesus. They were passive in their unbelief. They're not opposing Jesus. They're not objecting to Jesus. They're just observing Jesus. And that might be many of us this morning. You're not outrightly opposed to Christianity. You don't hate Jesus. You don't hate Christians per se for that matter. But you wouldn't really consider yourself a Christian, but you would hang around Christians, have some taste of what church would look like. Um, you're just simply an observer of what's going on and not outrightly opposed. You may even come to church on a day like this or at Christmas or some other times when it's convenient, and you've probably got some Christian friends. You may have Christian family, and you might internally harbor some judgments against them, but you would never say it. You're not rude. You're not um, outwardly divisive, and you even value the virtues of Jesus, love and tolerance and forgiveness. But you're just passive. You're there. You're just observing. And on that spectrum, you might even consider yourself to be a Christian. And your virtue might be that, that you don't judge people. And you see yourself as good. And you're passive. And you passive, the problem is, in your response to the severity of the situation that you face. You're passive in understanding and owning up to your sin. You overlook it in your response. And Jesus emphatically throughout the scriptures tells us it's light and it's dark. It is or it isn't. And your non-response or your non-choice is a choice. And it's a choice of rejection. It's a choice to unbelieve. It's a choice to say, even though I'm passive, you're actually saying, I don't agree. And you haven't yet come to weep over your sin. So I want to ask you this morning, if that is you in some sense, is to reflect and consider this beautiful, loving reminder that Jesus gives. Reflect on his love for you, in his call for you, in his death for you as we'll look at later. Reflect on it. Are you willing to weep and weep over your sin? 
there's other ways of unbelieving. There's those active unbelief in the story. Uh, if you look at um, verse 39, it says there's those two criminals on the cross. And one of them in verse 39 says this, who hung and hurled insults at Jesus, at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. Now, he's more active in his unbelief. He's publicly opposing. He's verbalizing within what he actually believes. And he opposes Jesus. And you might, um, he says that if you are God, save yourself and save me. And for some of us this morning, that could be us, that we feel more forthrightly in our unbelief. And we would express it in certain ways of how we think. And that might be for any number of reasons. There might be some intellectual objections that you have. There might be some emotional reasons why you unbelieve and object. It could be experiential, that things that you've experienced in life have brought you to a place of unbelief and objection to these truths and realities that we consider. And you have a similar view of God to, that this criminal next to him has. You might have come to this place that you believe that God is not as good as you think he is, that God isn't actually good, that God may have failed you, that he hasn't come through for you in whatever you thought he should have come through for you in. You might be questioning, where is God's love? Where is God's provision? Where is God's protection? You don't see God fulfilling the promises that you believe he has made. And you are actively opposing him in your unbelief. You look around at the world today and you see the multitude of injustices and you're left wondering, where is this God? He is not as good or as powerful as he says he is. And I want to also speak to you this morning and implore you to consider, reflect again, that in the death of Christ, he's answered all those questions. That the love that you've longed for is demonstrated in his dying for you. The injustices that you've seen and experienced, he dies to correct in the greatest act of justice. That all wrongs will be righted in his death. I want to ask you and beg you to reflect and consider that in his death, in your weeping, that the grace of God would open your eyes and your heart afresh to see that he has answered all your objections this morning in the greatest act of love, the greatest sovereign decision to overcome sin and its consequences, that in this act this morning he can heal, redeem, and renew any brokenness and hurt that you've ever experienced. And it's because of this morning, it's because of our sin, and it's because of his death that we could rejoice and have life. Would you weep? Would you consider that? Would you reflect on his death? There are others who object in unbelief as well. I call them the scoffers and the mockers. In verse 35 and 36, it said the people stood watching and the rulers sneered at him. They were laughing at him. They were making fun of him. The soldiers came up to him and they mocked him. And that might be you this morning. You're just simply unimpressed with Jesus. You're just simply unimpressed with the claims the academic reasoning behind Christianity, it just doesn't impress you. You look at Christians, you look at Christianity, and they're weak. Jesus doesn't stack up to your frame of reference of what impressive is and what I need. Here are the soldiers, they look at him and they say, look, who's this guy? He's homeless. He's broke. He doesn't have a following. He's not worthy of following. He's just some random chap. 
He's just some person that existed 2,000 years ago. He's not that <laughs> impressive. We are progressive today. We have, we're more enlightened. We've moved on from his teachings. His teachings are misogynistic or patriarchal or judgmental. We have moved on and developed further. He's just not that impressive to you. And you have objections intellectually, physically, or economically. He just doesn't stack up to your grid of what impressive is. And Christians are to be laughed at because they're weak and they need a crutch. And that might be you this morning. That your response is such. And I would call you again, like I've said, everyone, let's reflect. Let's reflect on the validity and the truth of what actually did historically happen today. That God himself comes in the flesh. That God himself does die. So that we might live. And that all the things that I've stacked my life on that I think are impressive and something to be looked at will ultimately be taken away in the coming judgment. They will be burned and turned down and the only thing left standing would be Jesus. It's not about being impressive. It's about being God. The only one who can forgive me of my sin. So how then should we respond? There is an option. We can respond differently. And this is where the good news that comes in this morning is that there are people in the story who respond differently and they respond in belief. Verse 34, the other criminal on the cross next to Jesus, what does he say? Actually, let me go back first and unwind that before we look at his response. What is Jesus' response more importantly? How does Jesus respond to this unbelief? in the face of rebellion, in the face of rejection, in the face of what he's going through, how does Jesus respond? In verse 34, he says this, Father, forgive them. It's astounding. Who would respond in this way? The abuse, the rejection, the murder, what he's going through. His response is, and everyone's acknowledged that he's innocent. Everyone's saying, but there's nothing wrong with him. He's not guilty. Pilate finds him not guilty. Everyone is saying, look, we cannot find anything wrong with him. You think he'd be aggrieved. And Jesus' response is simply, Father, forgive them. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't write them off. In this moment, he loves them. In this moment, Jesus is loving me and Jesus is loving you. In this moment, the, of greatest concern to Jesus therein is your deepest need which is the forgiveness of your sin. And he prays. He intercedes for us. Father, forgive them. And this is good news. And this, if you doubt the love of God, is a great demonstration of what true and perfect love is. If you are in unbelief this morning, you need to hear this prayer for you, that God himself forgives. And in this moment of praying for you, Jesus is dying because of you, and he's dying for you. In this moment of praying for you, my sin and your sin is killing him. And Jesus is dying for our sins so that you may be forgiven, and ultimately our sins won't kill us. And in that moment, he says, forgive. This wonderful, gracious, loving act in the most severe of circumstances, he says, forgive. There can be no greater demonstration of love than this. 
that Jesus would die for his enemies. Those who are passively indifferent and apathetic towards him, he dies for you. To those who are actively unbelieving and expressive in their doubt and unbelief in Jesus, he dies for you. To those who've come to doubt the goodness of God and his love and his, he dies for you. And his death makes it possible for life to be had, for renewal and redemption and forgiveness and new life to be formed. And as he's dying here, he's praying, and he's praying full of love and mercy and grace. Father, forgive them. I will go in their place. That God himself this morning reminds us in his response, full of love, I will go in your place. I will go in your place. So we can respond differently then. There is this option of belief. There is this option of placing your faith in Jesus, the one who goes in your place. And we see that in the second thief on the cross. There he is next to Jesus. And what does he say? Verse 40 to 42. And he rebukes the other guy first. He says, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. There it is again. He's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Look at his response of belief. Firstly, he understands, he comes to the realization of who Jesus is. Don't you fear God? Like he realized, this is God here next to me. That there's this perfect, spotless lamb without blemish. The holy God, the righteous God of all creation. This is him. And he is my only hope. And then he sees himself rightly. He sees the severity of the situation. He sees himself in that context. Notice what he says. We are being punished justly. We are getting what we deserve. He's reflected on the severity. And he's come to realize and agree with God and his assessment. That I am lost. That I am being judged rightly. The coming judgment. And I need a savior. And that's the beginning of the Christian journey. That's the beginning to life in Jesus Christ. It begins with an acknowledgement. It begins with an agreement, a confession with God, who he is and who I am in relation to him. There's an honest assessment. There's a humbling and a humility that comes and a willingness by the grace of God to see yourself that I am a sinner who's offended God. I'm not a victim. I don't blame it on my parents. I don't blame it on my culture. I don't blame it on my genetics. I don't blame it on my personality. I don't blame it on my circumstance. It's that moment of realization, myself and God, that I have fallen short, that I am sinful, and that he is my only hope. And today, he has demonstrated that love for me. And that's what this guy says on the cross. If you paraphrase, what he, that's what he says. I'm guilty. I deserve this. That's what he says. They're crucifying me. I'm not even going to defend myself. I'm going to acknowledge that it's true. I have lived in this way, and I deserve this. But this one, he doesn't deserve this. This is the perfect, sinless one. 
and I'm looking to Jesus. And what does he see when he looks at Jesus? What is Jesus not thinking about in this moment? Jesus is not thinking about himself. He's thinking about that guy. He's thinking about me. He's thinking about you in this moment. Father, forgive them. I will die in their place. And so this criminal on the cross responds in belief. He says, remember me. He's acknowledged, he's agreed, and he confesses, and he asks, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. And what does Jesus say? He says, I'll tell you the truth today that you will be with me in paradise. It's wonderful news. It's amazingly good news this morning that today, through Jesus, through your acknowledgement and your agreement and your confession and your faith in him, you might be in paradise. There is victory and there is life and there is hope in Good Friday. There is an assurance of salvation and that we can then begin to rejoice. Not only do we reflect on the severity, not only do we have to respond, and our non-response is a response, and then we can ultimately begin to rejoice. Rejoice in this moment. It's good news. See, what we see here, why can we rejoice? Well, there is nothing you can do that Jesus can't forgive. If he is willing to forgive murderers in the process of them killing him, he can forgive anything and everything that you ever do or have done. And that is good news. And Jesus answers his own prayer. As he's dying, he brings forgiveness. And the, the wonderful truth is, I want to say this again, is no matter how far gone you think you are, no matter how bad or how far you think you've fallen, no matter how we have this thing in church where we want to build up our badness CV to impress people in a testimony, like, ah, oh, well, I was like this. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the sense that it's never beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. And we can rejoice this morning that there is nothing that you have done or will do or can do that is beyond the grace of God and his power to forgive you. We can rejoice also because it's never too late. See, Jesus is on the cross and he provides an invitation for these two guys either side of him. And he gives us this invitation this morning. And what we see is it's never too late for anyone to take up the invite. That we could repent and believe today. It's never too late and the time is now. The call of Jesus is now as we sit here. Like it was for those guys hanging next to him, the time was now and it's never, ever too late. This guy hasn't lived a good life. He's admitted it. He's deserving of punishment. Yet it's never too late for him. In the final seconds of his life, the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God is extended to him. It's never too late. The time is now. And there is nothing that you have done that goes beyond the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. We can rejoice this morning because ultimately Jesus is our substitute. Substitute is someone who goes in your place. And ultimately, our judgment that Jesus warns us against on his way to the cross, he continues, and what does he do? He goes in our place. The deserving judgment that is coming our way, that he's warned us about, Jesus takes our place. Our sin is put on him. And his perfect life is given to us. 
We can get to rejoice this morning that we can receive that in repentance and faith that Jesus has paid the price in full. That there is no longer a judgment over your life. There is no longer your sins being held against you. Paul in Corinthians 2, 521, it says, God who made him, who knew no sin, made him to be our sin or our sin offering. And you've got to consider that for a moment. The greatness and the beauty of our substitute is that not only was Jesus physically suffering, but far worse than that, in that moment, the whole sin of all of time was upon him. Think about that. Every lie, every rejection, every abuse, every murder, everything, everything is upon him. He absorbs as our substitute the acts and the consequences and the results of every sin upon him. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment he peers into eternity and he realizes how dire it is to be separated from God the Father's love. But he makes it so wonderful in that we don't have to go there. That he is our substitute. And that is good news that forgiveness has been given our punishment has been paid in full, and we get to receive the life of Christ. And lastly, it's good news because Jesus dies for you. It's a simple yet profound statement that Paul, as I began in 1 Corinthians 15, he says our first importance, you must get this. There is no gospel without this. Jesus dies for you. Jesus dies for your sins. There's no good news without your sin. There's no good news without his death. And it's a small word. There's no good news if Jesus dies. It's exceedingly good news if he dies for your sin. And he dies to forgive you. And he dies to love you. He dies to heal you. He dies to redeem you. He dies to adopt you as his own. He dies to take it all. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Isaiah 53.5, he was pierced for our transgressions, our sin. For our iniquities, our sin. That's my sin and that's your sin. And that's what we need to hear this Good Friday. That's the starting point that we can exceedingly sing with joy as we go and look to Sunday at the resurrected life that comes to us, that Jesus has died in our place for our sins. And that's what true love is. If you're looking for love, that's what he says in Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners... Christ dies for us. While we were rebelling, while we were on our own path, while we considered and didn't think we needed any help, while we were on our way to judgment, Jesus stops, Jesus reminds us, and Jesus continues to go for us in our place for our sins. And if you're wondering this morning if God truly does love you, if you're wondering this morning, is this a God of love? I can say emphatically, yes, God loves you. That God became a man, that he lived without sin, that God came and lived the life that you never lived. He died the death that you deserved, and he gives you the gifts of life that you cannot earn. And you can know today that God does truly love you. He doesn't love you because of he's given you some wealth or some prosperity or some privilege. No, he loves you because God gives you himself. God gives you his son, and God gives you this morning salvation. 
And that is what love is. And God loves you so deeply. God loves you so passionately. God loves you so intimately. God loves you so perfectly that when he chose to give you, he gives you himself. He gives you himself this morning, that you get the fullness of the perfect love of God, that you are loved, and no one can love you like this. And it's unfathomable, but this morning, by the grace of God, that your eyes would be opened to the wonder and the beauty of the love of God, that those of us, all of us, who are undeserving and ill-deserving, to those of us who are enemies in our passivity or enemies in our acts of unbelief, we become the recipients of the perfect, eternal love of God. And this is the truth of first importance that we must lay down this morning, that Jesus dies in our place for our sins.